Welcome to a new episode of an Annals of the Rheumatic Diseases podcast. I'm Dr. Paul Sudenik, working at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden at the Medical University in Vienna and Austria as well. Today, we will be talking to Professor Pedro Machado from the Center for Rheumatology and Department of Neuromuscular Diseases from the University College London in the United Kingdom. So thank you very much, Paul, for the introduction and for the invitation to participate in this Annals of the Rheumatic Diseases podcast. It is a great pleasure to be, to be here with you today. Uh, so my name is Pedro Machado. I am an associate professor at University College London and a consultant rheumatologist at University College, College London Hospitals and at Nordic Park Hospital, both in London, United Kingdom. Uh, my research interests include the investigation of new therapeutic strategies and the assessment and prediction of outcomes in rheumatic diseases with a focus on muscle diseases and axial spondyloarthritis. And more recently, I have developed an interest in COVID-19 in the context of rheumatic diseases, and that will be the topic of this podcast. Well, a very warm welcome. It's great that you could join and take the time for that. Um, we will we will discuss today the, the EULA COVID-19 database and actually the latest article on, on factors associated with COVID-19-related deaths in people with rheumatic diseases, which was recently published in the Annals of the Rheumatic Diseases. So it is uh, an impressive collaboration that you, together with many colleagues from the US and Europe, have, have built. And it might be that some of our listeners, uh, the Cuyula COVID-19 database and also the Global Rheumatology Aliens uh, might not be so familiar. So could you very briefly summarize uh, how the register was built and the purpose? So as, uh, as everyone knows, the, the, the coronavirus pandemic, it presented a huge uh, global healthcare challenge including to the, to the rheumatology community and, uh, and to patients with, with rheumatic disease. Uh, and many patients with rheumatic diseases, um, they have an underlying immune dysfunction and they are treated either with immunosuppressive or immunomodulatory uh, dr uh, drugs. Um, moreover, they can also experience higher levels of comorbidity and some of them may have organ damage related to, to, the, to their condition. Um, now, this uh, raised questions and concerns uh, about the impact of the rheumatic diseases and, and, and their treatments on the outcomes of SARS-CoV-2 infection. Um, uh, and these concerns uh, also provided the encouragement to create uh, a wide-ranging global research collaboration uh, to address these issues. And this is, in fact, what led to a partnership between ULAR and the Global Rheumatology Alliance to collect as much data as possible from patients with rheumatic diseases and, and COVID-19. And, and, and it was in the, following this collaboration that a global online registry uh, to meet these information needs was, was created. Now, the data are entered directly and voluntarily either into the global or the European data entry system, and then, uh, or in some cases, data can also be transferred 
from national registries, such as the case of France, uh, Germany, Italy, uh, Portugal, uh, and Sweden. And ultimately, the purpose of this collaborative effort is to collect, analyze, and disseminate information about COVID-19 and rheumatology, and to improve the care of patients with, with rheumatic diseases. So my next question is, of course, kind of independence to the numbers of entries that are available in the registry. Um, and everyone knows that registry data and observational data do have their, their limitations. So, but particularly for the COVID-19 registry, what conclusions um, does the data allow you to draw? So that's a very important uh, question because there are obviously some limitations with regards to what uh, an observational study and, a, and a, a registry type of data set can do. Uh, and indeed, the ULAR uh, JRA uh, physician reported registry is an observational data set. It was initially launched in, uh, in, on the 24th of March, 2020. And the data are entered voluntarily by rheumatologists or uh, healthcare professionals in rheumatology. And patients are eligible for inclusion if they have a pre-existing rheumatic disease and SARS-CoV-2 infection. Now, as a cross-sectional case reporting registry, uh, this data set is adequate to explore factors associated with certain COVID-19 outcomes, particularly severe outcomes such as hospitalization or ICU admission or death. Uh, however, these are associations and uh, we, we do caution uh, against causal interpretation of, of the estimates that uh, are provided. Some of these factors that can be studied are, for example, demographic factors such as age and gender and clinical factors such as comorbidities, the underlying rheumatic disease diagnosis or the anti-rheumatic medications that, that the patients are taking. And the more cases we have, the more reliable and robust our results will be. So larger sample sizes will also help us to analyze individual conditions and less frequent outcomes or less uh, frequent medications that are used by our patients. It is therefore critical that the database continues to be enriched by cases of COVID-19 in patients with rheumatic diseases. However, I think it's very important to bear in mind that there is an absence of uh, a population-based comparator. And therefore, we are unable to make comparison between those with and without COVID-19. And moreover, uh, the, the study may be subject to various types of bias, including, including selection biases, if, if more severe cases are more likely uh, to come to the rheumatologist's attention and therefore more likely to be reported. And, uh, and therefore, the, 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 for example, the hospitalization and death rates that are observed in the registry they should not be extrapolated to the general population of patients with rheumatic diseases. I would expect the death and hospitalization rates if we took the entire population of rheumatic disease into account to be lower than the ones reported in the, 
in this registry. And this just this, uh, uh, briefly outlined some of the limitations of the, of the study. Well, um, this, I think this is a good basis to, to start with uh, a short summary of the current study and the latest results um, that uh, actually explore risk factors for COVID-19 related deaths. So what, what were the key findings here? So the registry uh, collected information on 3,729 people with rheumatic disease and, uh, and SARS-CoV-2 infection. Now in total, uh, three, and 390 people died. So just over 10% of deaths. And we looked to see if there were any common factors in people who died compared to those with re who recovered from the, from the COVID-19 infection. Now we found that older age and male sex were associated with COVID-19 related death. For example, of those who died, over two thirds were over the age of 65. And the risk of dying was even higher in people over the age of 75 and for men compared to women. We also found that comorbidities were more common in people who die from COVID-19. Now, among, uh, though, among the, the 3,729 people that were included, most people had at least one other comorbidity. The most common were hypertension, uh, chronic lung disease, and obesity. Now, in the whole group, 21% of people had three or more comorbidities. And when we looked only at the people who had died, 43% had three or more comorbidities. Therefore, we can say that comorbidities, some comorbidities are independently associated with dying uh, from COVID-19. And these included chronic lung disease or having cardiovascular disease combined with hypertension. Chronic kidney disease was also a risk factor, uh, but only for people with a connective tissue disease or, or vasculitis, but it did not increase the risk of death for people with other types of rheumatic disease. Uh, uh, with regards to, to medications, we also found that certain medications used by patients with rheumatic diseases were associated with COVID-19 related death. So people taking rituximab, a B-cell depleting agent, or sulfasalazine were more likely to die from COVID-19. And a similar association was seen for a mixed group of immunosuppressants. And this mixed group include, included drugs such as azathioprine, cyclophosphamide, cyclosporine, uh, mycophenolate, and antacrolimates. Um, and uh, uh, however, the numbers uh, of, of these uh, immunosuppressants were too low to allow an individual analysis by immunosuppressive drug, which makes it difficult to, to interpret the results specifically for, for, this, for this mixed group. And finally, uh, with regards to uh, glucocorticoids, so moderate to high doses of, of, of glucocorticoids or steroids, uh, namely doses uh, uh, of uh, 10 or more 
milligrams per day of prednisolone equivalent were also associated with a higher risk of dying uh, across all rheumatic diseases. Another very important finding was that people with moderate or high disease activity were more likely to die from COVID-19 compared to those with low disease activity or people who were in remission. So in summary, I think our paper highlights that the risk of dying from COVID-19 varies across, um, uh, uh, varies according to the people's underlying disease activity and what medicine they are taking. And I believe it's very important, and the data show it, it's very important for people with rheumatic disease to continue to control their disease activity with DMARDs, preferably without increasing the glucocorticoid dose, if possible, because in some cases this might, might not be possible. Well, you brought up a, a nice summary in, of, of, of the key findings. And I would like to uh, point out some um, specifics about that. So you mentioned sulfasalicin. And um, I think many people were puzzled to read that sulfasalicin uh, is associated with a higher risk of death. So could you provide here uh, an, an explanation for, for this finding? Yeah, so this is indeed a, a very intriguing finding that I think merits uh, further research. Um, importantly, um, this association, and interestingly, in fact, this association has also been reported in results from uh, uh, another international registry, which is a registry of patients with inflammatory bowel disease and COVID-19, COVID where the use of uh, sulfasalazine or, or mesalazine, which is a, a drug also known as uh, mesalamine or 5-aminosalicylic acid or, or 5-ASA. So in this registry, these drugs were also associated with, with, with severe COVID-19. So it's not a finding that ex is exclusive to, to our registry. Uh, you know, despite that, uh, the finding is indeed surprising as sulfasalazine is usually considered to have a, a low immunosuppressive effect. Uh, having said this, prior research uh, uh, does support an immune regulatory effect driven by sulfasalazine or, 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 or its metabolite 5-ASA against other RNA viruses. So, uh, so there could be uh, a mechanism there related uh, um, to uh, viral clearance. Um, and I would also like to highlight that uh, causal interpretation of this association uh, should, should be avoided. Uh, in fact, the, the lower perceived uh, immunosuppressive effect of sulfasalazine may have led some rheumatologists to prescribe uh, this drug preferentially over other drugs such as methotrexate in patients who were perceived to be at higher risk. So for example, patients with pulmonary disease or smokers or patients with recurrent chest infections. And in an observational study like ours, this could in fact lead to what we call unmeasured confounding. So th there might be uh, confounding variables that we were not able to, to account for. And the notable difference in sulfasalazine users in our study 
was that a higher proportion of current or former smokers compared to, uh, uh, compared to non-sulfasalazine users was found. And in the, in, when we did some stratified analysis and some sensitivity analysis, and, and for chronic lung disease, the association between death and sulfasalazine was significant in both groups, so both in the group with and without chronic lung disease, while in the stratified analysis for smoking, the association was limited uh, to patients who were ever smokers compared to those that never smoked. And uh, what this means is that, for example, smoking could potentially be a, an effect modifier here. And finally, um, uh, sulfasalazine might be used more frequently in certain countries compared to others. And like with other DMARTs, patients in the UK receiving sulfasalazine were not advised to isolate or shield during the first peak of the pandemic, as opposed to other DMARTs like methotrexate and as opposed to biologic drugs and target synthetic DMARTs. And as such, they may have also received, uh, let's say, a higher dose of the virus in the community. They may have been more exposed to the virus in the community. A having said this, a lot of this is speculation, uh, but I guess the, the summary is that it's not easy to interpret this result. Um, and there is the possibility of uh, confounding factors um, having uh, contributed to this. Although I think it's something to bear in mind and to study further, because it's not something that has only been found in our registry, but it has also been found in other registries, namely the uh, inflammatory bowel disease registry. Well, thank you, Pedro, for this interpretation on the sulfasalazine finding. I think um, it definitely merits more research and also the collection of more data to uh, explore that in more depth. Um, one interesting finding was also that the proportion of people who were not receiving any DMARTs or immunosuppressive treatment, that they were higher uh, among the deceased patients. So could you say that people who receive DMARTs um, have a protective role for COVID-19 infection, or is it that people in, in a state of higher disease activity, that this was combined to each other? Um, could you make a comment on, on, on that um, combination? Yes, sure. That's a very interesting point. Um, I, 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 I would refrain from, from concluding that uh, these, any of these drugs as a, as a protective uh, role in, in COVID-19 infection. I, I don't think that's the case, and I don't think the, da the data allow us to conclude that. It, the, the group of patients not taking DMARTs had, in general, uh, factors that are associated with a, with a poor outcome, such as being older or uh, having a, a, a higher uh, comorbidity burden, or uh, 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 they were people that were more frequently taking glucocorticoids. One of the reasons why they were probably not taking DMARTs is, in fact, because they probably had contraindications to some of these drugs. And interestingly, their disease activity also tended to be higher. Uh, therefore, I think this uh, is in fact a group of people that were at higher risk of 
um, having a more severe outcome in the, in the first place because of all these factors. And I think that the, one of the most important take-home messages of this study is that there is indeed a differential risk of COVID-19 related death according to disease activity, highlighting the need for adequate disease control with DMARDs, preferably without increasing the glucocorticoid dose. Disease activity was indeed an independent factor associated with COVID-19 related death, and its control seems to be very important in order to achieve better outcomes in the context of, of COVID-19 in patients with rheumatic diseases. So um, kind of coming, coming already a bit to the end, uh, according to registry, what, what are the next steps or um, do you have kind of a, a, a number in the end of patients that you would like to have in, uh, included in the registry that you aim for? And in, in that context, since um, reporting of cases is uh, very different and skewed in between the countries, some, some countries report much more than others, but even though countries are a lot affected by COVID-19, um, is there, uh, do you have any, any tips or uh, thoughts on how EULA might also play a role in supporting uh, that more uh, entries can be reported in countries that have low reporting? Yeah, so um, starting with the, with the issue of numbers, um, while we were already able to study a, a significant number of factors, including um, uh, demographic factors and comorbidities, medications, there are still less frequent variables and in fact outcomes that we were not able to, to analyze. Um, and this will be possible in the future if the numbers continue to, to increase and the population is, is representative. Now, there is no specific target number that we are aiming for. In fact, the higher the number, the greater the potential of the database. And if the numbers are sufficient, we'll be able to investigate less commonly used drugs and less frequent diseases. And we will also be able to analyze more homogeneous subgroups of specific conditions, which may provide more, more granular insights into risk factors for severe COVID-19 in, in patients with, with RMDs. And, and, and with regards to the support of, of ULAR, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm very grateful to ULAR for all the support received thus far. And, uh, and uh, uh, by continuing to support the, data the database and advertise it to all relevant stakeholders using the various means of communication, such as direct emails, uh, the ULAR website and social media platforms, uh, I think we'll be able to continue to increase the, the numbers. Uh, the JRA, which, which um, um, deals basically with the rest of the world, so outside Europe, uh, they are already developing activities to, and, and there's in fact a, a, a small grant program that aims to support low and middle income countries to, to, uh, to uh, upload more data. So, uh, and that will help us to, to make the, the registry more representative 
so there are already ongoing initiatives to, uh, to help these efforts. Well, that sounds terrific. Um, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to discuss the latest findings and the registry itself. Um, I think this was a, a useful and great overview. Uh, would you like to add anything at the at the end of our session here? Uh, well, I would just like to thank very much the, the entire rheumatology community for supporting the registry. Uh, their engagement has, has been amazing. And uh, uh, every single rheumatologist and healthcare professional in rheumatology contributing to the registry has been instrumental to its success. And I would also like to thank ULAR, uh, the ACR, all the national societies and my colleagues in the ULAR and JRI database steering committees uh, for their fantastic collaborative support and annals of the rheumatic diseases for, for, for the kind invitation to be here today. Thank you very much. Professor Magella, thank you very much for your time and contributing uh, to this podcast. And uh, thank you all for joining us in uh, this AID podcast. And if you would like to read the full paper, please visit the website aid.bmj.com. Thank you.